The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Turn to the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. I wanted to preach through uh, an Old Testament prophet in my church. No one can find the Old Testament prophet, so I picked the last one. So find Matthew, and then just go back a page, and you'll find Malachi. So you can actually find the book of Malachi. And this morning, we're going to be talking about giving. We're going to be talking about money. And I'm pretty excited about that, because I can say whatever I want and offend you and then leave, and Caleb has to deal with it. So it's not... It's not my problem, because uh, people don't like to talk about money, do they? And they especially don't like to be told uh, what they're supposed to do with their money. So many people are generally wary of pastors and churches talking about money to some degree, and I agree with that. I, I understand, because so much of it has been done so poorly, and often with mistaken, and I think sometimes malicious, motives. It's really easy to pick on the prosperity guys here. Uh, my family, we're from the South, we're from North Carolina, my dad was here last weekend, and we love books, so after church, we went over to Manhattan to the Strand Bookshop. Have you ever heard of the Strand? It's the, one of the biggest, oldest, most famous bookstores there, and bookstores are a rare and dying breed, especially independent bookstores. So we love the Strand and we love to go look around. Now, it's a super liberal, non-Christian bookstore. Um, so I always think it's funny to go check out the Christian section in some of these um, bookstores. And it's literally, you got to go down to the basement and there's this little dark corner with uh, literally some cobwebs and a little bit, a couple of Christian books. And there's a few things here and there. And it's largely garbage. But I always check when I go to see what they have. And I'm proud to say that there was not a single Joel Osteen book in the whole Strand bookstore, right? I, I was impressed, right? So even the super liberal non-Christians of the Strand recognize that his message has nothing to do with Christianity, right? But he's the face of this whole stream of guys on TBN and uh, elsewhere telling you that if you just if you just sow your seed, God will multiply it a hundredfold, right? He, he wants to make you rich. So if you just give us your money and have a little bit of faith, God's going to give you great riches. Right? It's, it's absurd. Right? It's, it's manipulative, and it's particularly abusive to the poor. They particularly prey on the poor um, like the lottery does. Who doesn't like the idea of getting a whole bunch of money for giving just a little bit of money? It sounds like a sweet deal, but it is a false teaching. It is a false gospel. My general, don't watch TBN, by the way. It's a tip, pastor's tip. My general rule is if a pastor is on TV, don't watch. That's the general rule. Sometimes Sproul is on TV. Sometimes MacArthur is. They're all right. But the guys on TV generally turn it off, right? So these prosperity guys have ruined the ability uh, for the rest of us to talk about money. But they're not the only guilty ones. Many non-prosperity preachers do a very poor job of talking about money and giving as well. Uh, we were on vacation down in July, going to visit family down south, and we always go to church for the two Sundays that we're away. And in one of the churches we were visiting, um, the pastor finished up. The ushers are coming up to collect the offering. He, he found it necessary to grab the plate and kind of passive-aggressively stand there in the front and say, oh, I just want you to notice that we're... $20,000 under budget, so we're just going to pray and trust God that he's going to meet that need. And then they pass the plates, right? Now that you feel really guilty, and now that there's information on your mind, they get those plates out and hope that you will now give in response to guilt. Guilt. 
motivated giving is how most people do it. And it simply doesn't work. And more importantly, it is wrong. So there has been much abuse and poor teaching in the church when it comes to money. Uh, So I understand people's hesitancy when we get to a giving sermon. So I hope that you'll bear with me. And by God's grace, I think dependent upon this text, I want to explain to you what biblical gospel motivated giving looks like. Uh, In the book of Malachi, the people have wandered away from the Lord, right? They've already rejected the Lord. God has justly punished them. He has sent them into exile in the land, but he's now brought them back very graciously. The walls have been rebuilt. The temple has been uh, rebuilt. The people are back, but things aren't any better. The people have again grown cold and stale in their worship of God, and God graciously sends them Malachi, uh, this prophet, to, to point out to them where that's happening and why that's happening, and God is graciously calling them back to him. And today he points to their giving or their lack of giving as evidence of their hard and sinful hearts. So this morning God is going to draw a direct connection between your wallet and between your heart, between your pocketbook and your theology between your giving and your believing. What you do with your money is one of the clearest, if not the clearest, indicators of your heart and of your relationship or lack of relationship with the Lord. If you want a clear look at your relationship with God, look at your checkbook. Or since nobody uses checkbooks anymore, look at your online banking account or whatever it is that you use. So, so this text and this sermon, I think it will keep Jesus' words in Matthew six twenty one in our mind. I think it is well summed up by what he says there, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your heart follows your money. Your money reveals your heart. We may not like to talk a lot about our money, but our money talks a lot about us. So I want to see what this text can show us about our heart and about our money. I've got four headings. If you're a note taker, I'll I'll tell them to you and I'll remind you as we go to kind of help you keep up with where we are. We're going to look at the comfort, the charge, the command, and the consequence. Comfort, charge, command, consequence. Number one, we're going to look at four principles of giving from each of these headings. Number one, we're going to see that giving is motivated by grace. Giving is motivated by grace. Then we're going to look at the charge and we'll see that a refusal to give is actually a rejection of God. And then number three, we'll look at the command, give generously because of God's generosity to us in Jesus Christ. And then finally, we'll look at the consequence that giving brings blessing. Giving brings blessing. And I'll, I'll remind you of those as we work through it. So let me read the text for you first. Let's, let's get into the text of Malachi chapter 3. We're going to read verses 6 through 12. I'll read it for you. You can follow along in the copy in front of you. Uh, this is the word of God, and this word of God is for you, the people of God. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. 
and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Bow with me and let's begin our time first with with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that your word is living and active. Um, Father, we thank you for the promise of your spirit, uh, Father, who works through your word. And so right now we claim that promise. Uh, Father, we ask for your spirit to come and to give us understanding. Father, open our eyes so that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Uh, Father, protect me uh, from the temptation to slip into motivating with guilt. Uh, Father, I pray that we will see the grace and the gospel in Jesus Christ as the great reason and motive for why we do what we do in in giving. Uh, Father, you have been so so gracious to us. I pray that we will see that grace through your word here this morning. Um, Father, we ask for you to work in this time, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so beginnings are always important. Don't miss how God begins here. God already has done this at the very beginning of the letter. This is a, Malachi is a brutal letter. Uh, go, go read it. But the first thing that God says in the letter, he starts off by reminding them, he says, I have loved you. And again here in this text where he's going to point to their failure in this area of giving, he starts with love. He starts with grace. He says, for I, the Lord, I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. Other translations say you are not destroyed or or you have not perished. So before God gets to his charge, his accusation, he first starts off with comfort, with a reminder. He starts off with himself, who he is and what he has done. This whole letter, if you go back and read it, is about the faithlessness of the people. Back in the section of chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, God calls them faithless four different times. They've sinned in their sacrifices, the priesthood has sinned, their relationships are marked by sin, their marriages are falling apart, and now they're giving. This letter is largely about the sin and the failure of the people. And just in case you weren't aware, the Old Testament is largely about the sin and the failure of the people. It's not a bunch of morality stories. The point is not dare to be a Daniel or or slay your giants like David. The point is that all of those guys were train wrecks, right? The Old Testament is a story of the people's sin and failure and faithlessness. But thankfully, though that is largely the story of Malachi and the Old Testament, it is not primarily the story because they are both primarily a story about the faithfulness of our God in spite of our faithlessness. I, the Lord, do not change. That's, that's huge, right? That's, that's your only hope, the, the constancy and faithfulness of God to an inconstant and faithless people in an ever-changing and undependable world. God starts with grace. The the fact that this people with all of the sin in this letter are not utterly wiped out by the justice of God is pure grace. It's because he is faithful and he is faithful to his covenant. He is faithful to the promises that he has made to his people that though they are an impossibly stubborn and sinful people, they are not consumed. Guys, God is far more patient with us than we are with anyone else. He is far more patient with me than I am with my children. He does not change. He cannot and he will not go back on his promises. He is faithful. So again, before he launches into his charge, he brings a word of comfort. Before he starts talking about their faithlessness in giving, he starts talking about his faithfulness in giving. He starts with grace. He motivates with grace, which means that biblical giving must also be motivated by grace. That's why I got so frustrated with that that pastor down south. He didn't get this first and most basic 
principle. He was trying to guilt and to manipulate his people with his passive aggressiveness into feeling bad right before he passed that plate. And I've seen all kinds of pastors do this in all kinds of different ways. There's a guy not far from us in Queens that I've checked out and watched, and I've seen him make a point of, my wife's got my wallet out there. I just want you guys to know, my wife's doing the giving. It's coming around. She's going to I've seen other pastors, they like, rip out their wallet. I'm going to give, and I, I give, and now you guys are going to give. You're going to do this, that, or the other, and that's it's just a dollar, but uh, I'm going to keep it because I need it. Um, but the point is, they do all these ridiculous theatrical things to try to get you to, look at what I'm doing. Look, I'm going to make you feel bad, and you're going to give, and I'm going to show you what I'm doing, and then now you're going to do it. It's just it's wrong, right? They don't get it. That's not motivating with grace. But listen, it's so tempting and easy to fall back into guilt. Well, we just heard about how God curses those who don't give. I hope you don't get cursed this morning. Here's here's the plate. Um, here, Here we go. Right? And then we pass it and the guilt is now on your conscience. That's not giving. That's not what we're looking for. That's not what they're looking for here at Redeeming Grace. Giving starts with the grace of God. And we'll look more specifically at what that grace is in point number three. But first, I want to get to point number two. Let's look at the charge where we're going to see that a refusal to give is actually a rejection of God. Look at verse seven. It says, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Man, that right there is like the whole history of of Israel. That's the, the, the whole history of the Old Testament summed up in one phrase. You have turned aside from me and you have disobeyed me. So first he starts off generally and then he's going to get more specific. But, but again and again, as you read through the Old Testament, you cannot help but notice the constant and repeated disobedience of the people. Think about, think about this. I just did this really quickly off the top of my head. Genesis 3. Adam and Eve disobey. Genesis 4, Cain disobeys. Genesis 6, the whole world disobeys. Genesis 9, Noah disobeys. Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, the whole world disobeys again. Genesis 12, Abraham disobeys. i got to skip stuff because there's too much. Genesis 27, Jacob disobeys. Exodus 32, the golden calf. All of Israel disobeys. Numbers 20, Moses disobeys. The whole book of Judges is about the whole people disobeying. 1 Samuel 13, Saul disobeys. 2 Samuel 11, David disobeys. 1 Kings 11, Solomon disobeys. And I could just go on and on and on. God says in Deuteronomy 9, 24, you have been rebellious against me from the day that I knew you. This is what we just said at the beginning. The Old Testament is a record of the people's sin and unfaithfulness. They have repeatedly rebelled against and rejected God. And just in case we're tempted to miss the point, this is our story too. My life and your life, if we're honest, is also a record of our sin and our unfaithfulness. We have repeatedly rebelled against and rejected God. So God graciously calls them back. He doesn't have to, but he is patient and kind. Look at the second phrase of verse 7. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Again, that right there is a perfect one-word summary of all the prophets. All 17 of these books at the end of the Old Testament that we generally ignore and that are generally saying the same thing, it's this word, return. Or the word could be translated, repent, change your mind, turn around, come back to me. And he holds out great incentive and promise to us here. He doesn't just say, you better do this or else. He says, return to me and I will return to you. The relationship can be restored. There's there's still hope for life and peace. Come back. But look at their response at the end of verse 7. But you say, how shall we return? 
Now, again, this is not a genuine question. They're not wondering, like, oh, how, how can we do that? Tell us, God, that we want to come back. How can we help? No, they're not actually unaware of what to do and desirous of enlightenment. This is more of an accusation than a question. The people do this eight times in the course of Malachi. God said something, and they push back, and they argue um, with him. You could read this phrase with a bit of different emphasis. How can we return to you? They're saying, what are you talking about, God? We're right here. We're in church. We're here. We're in, we're in the temple. We're, we're sacrificing. We're, we're giving. What do you mean, return? And some of you are thinking the same thing. You hear this talk from me. You probably hear it from, from Caleb and their other elders. You hear all this talk about sin and about your need for repentance and forgiveness. And you're thinking, man, what are you guys talking about? Right? I'm a pretty good person. You guys are so negative. Right? I'm, not, I'm not that bad. Like Israel, you haven't yet seen the reality and the severity of your sins. So you, so you push back just like them. Oh, I'm all right. This, this, this is crazy. But now God starts to get specific. How shall we return to you? Verse 8. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. And they fight back again. How have we robbed you? God's answer in your tithes and contributions. And so here's how their general disobedience is specifically manifesting itself in this instance. They are robbing God, which is a ridiculous idea, right? How can man rob God? That doesn't make sense. But they're, do- they're doing it, right? They're not bringing in all of the required tithe. So we've got to step back for a second and, and talk about that. We've got to talk about this tithe thing. We don't have time to do it justice, but there's a lot of confusion out there about the tithe, so we need to briefly address it. And the word tithe just literally means tenth. We see the concept the very first time all the way back in Genesis 14. Abraham tithes a tenth to Melchizedek. But then it is later more specifically codified for Israel in the Mosaic law. And the tithe was a central part of the economic system that God had given to the nation of Israel. The tithe was necessary for the healthy economic functioning of society, and all citizens of Israel were required to do it. The best thing to think about it, actually, in modern terms, would be to compare it more to our current property tax or or income tax. And for those of you who want the tithe to be the continuing practice of the church today... Be careful what you wish for, because there was actually um, at least three separate tithes required by the law. The one that we're most familiar with was called the Levitical tithe. This seems to be what Malachi is talking about here. You can read about the Levitical tithe in Leviticus 27, verses 30 through 33, or Numbers 18 through 21 through 32. I don't have time to get into all these things with you, but I'll give you the references if you want to look it up. Remember, Israel had been brought into the promised land by God. The land was then divided up amongst the 12 tribes, except for the Levites. They didn't get any land. Their inheritance instead was the tithe. Since they didn't have land to work to support their family, they got this tithe, also called the first fruits tithe. It was given to them as um, compensation and support for serving as the priest. So that was 10% went to the Levites. Then there was actually another tithe that was called the celebratory tithe, or sometimes it's just called the second tithe. You can read about this one in Deuteronomy 14, verses 22 through 27. This one's pretty cool. Uh, We should bring this one back. This one is basically the party tithe, right? God God loves parties, he loves feasts and celebrations, and this tithe went to pay for all the feasts and all the festivals that the people were required by law to keep. It wasn't supposed to be a burden, it was supposed to be a privilege. It was a break, it was a required opportunity to feast and to celebrate and to remember God's goodness and his provision. We should bring back the party tithe. All right, so that's another 
10% that was required every year. So we're up to 20%, by the way. But then there was actually a third tithe, and this one was called the welfare tithe or the poor tithe. It's in Deuteronomy 14. You can see it in verses 28 and 29. This tithe you were required to bring once every three years, and it went to support the poor. Not, not the lazy, but the truly poor. So that's actually three tithes, which were basically taxes. Year one, 20%. Year two, 20%. Year three, 30%. So that averages out to 23.3% a year. Now, it's complicated. There's some disagreement about how all these tithes play out. There's a couple people that actually claim that with all the different tithes and givings that Israel was giving upwards of 40% of their income every single year. We're not positive, but it seems that 23.3% is the most likely. This is what was required of Israel. It was the law. It was a tax. They weren't doing it, which means, first, that they were being disobedient. They were breaking God's clear law. But second, it means that they were dishonoring God. If you go back and you read through the book of Malachi, he talks about this a lot, dishonoring me. And it becomes clear that dishonoring God largely means disobeying God. Thus, to honor him largely means to honor him. My, my daughters honor me by obeying me most of the time. Unfortunately, they're, they're like me. They've got a lot of Israel in them as well. But when they disobey me, the problem is not they've just broken some arbitrary rule. The problem is that they have rejected and dishonored me. Yes, laws and rules are, are legal by nature, but they are also always personal. Right? God's law is a revelation of his good character and his good design for us. To break it is to specifically sin against him. To reject his law is to reject him. They were dishonoring God by not obeying him in the area of the tithes. So, verse 9, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. That's God's charge to his people. You're, you're, you're robbing You're dishonoring me by disobeying me about the tithe. So that's our second principle of giving. A refusal to give is actually a rejection of God. But we've got to contextualize that. We need to first explain how this charge to the nation of Israel 2,500 years ago applies to us, the church, today. So first off, we have to answer the question that everyone asks, right? Well, Well, do we have to tithe? And listen, if you go by what we just discussed, if you go by the Bible then of course you don't have to tithe, right? In a very real sense, the tithe has nothing to do with us. The tithe was part of the Mosaic law that was specifically given to the ancient nation-state of Israel to regulate their religious and political life. We are clearly no longer part of the ancient nation-state of Israel, so this simply cannot apply to us. Plus, if you want the tithe to apply, you need to go back into the plate and rip up your little 10% check and make that check out for 23.3% to the church. Uh, You're welcome, leaders of the church. Uh, Because that's how it worked. It wasn't 10%, it was 23.3%. So there you go. Technically, you are no longer under the tithe. you're welcome. I'm glad we've already done the giving or the offering. People are going to be mad at me. But, but is, that what this, is that what this means? Is that, oh, all right, guest pastor says I don't have to tithe. Right? It's, all, it's all mine, 10% back in my pocket. Let's, let's go out to eat, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. No, you know, we'll, we'll pay attention here. Let's, let's keep moving. Let me try to explain what's going on here. Let's look at number three. Let's look at the command. Look at verse 10. He says, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Stop there. Here's the command. Here's how Israel could repent and return to God in this area. Bring the full tithe. 
simply meaning obey. <laughs> do what I already told you to do in the law. Honor me with your money. Pretty simple. Doesn't require a lot of explanation. Stop disobeying. Obey. So let's jump straight to the application. If you are not required to tithe, then first of all, right, how can you say that a refusal to give is a rejection of God? Well, notice again the, the word, the semantics that I'm using. Uh, I said a refusal to give, right, not a refusal to tithe. Because there's not a single command or even hint in the New Testament that we are supposed to tithe. Paul talks a lot about money and giving, and Paul never once mentions the tithe. So it was clearly over. But no tithing does not then mean no giving. The tithe was a required tax motivated by God's law. Giving is a voluntary gift motivated by God's grace. Let's look at the longest section on giving in the New Testament. If you want to, turn to 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Paul gives a lot of uh, information and advice here about giving. You'll find the main idea in chapter 9, verse 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. Not tithe, not law, but each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Again, here's why most pastors' passive-aggressive guilt trips don't work and are misguided. Motive matters. The heart matters. It's our first principle. Giving is motivated by grace. What grace? We'll look over at chapter 8, verse 9. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's grace. That's, That's why we give. Our giving is a response to God's giving. He initiates We respond. God gives, then we give. And he has given to us infinitely more than we could ever give to him. That verse there is the gospel. We're looking here at gospel-generated giving. The, The goodness and the grace of what God has done for us moves us and motivates us and gives us the desire to voluntarily and willingly and cheerfully give back to him. Which means that if you're not giving, the answer is not to just kind of start giving. The answer is not to flip a a single into the offering plate as it comes by to kind of assuage your guilt. The answer is the gospel. The problem is that you don't really know it or understand it because if you did, you would give. Because that's just actually how relationships work. This isn't really just a religious thing. This is a relationship thing. When someone is abundantly and overwhelmingly gracious and generous to you, It affects you, right? It changes you. It informs your relationship and directly affects how you respond to them. Caleb said all these nice things about me when he was up here. None of them are true. I am a difficult and grumpy and negative and impatient person. I go ask my wife. And the fact that my wife still loves me and serves me and gives to me and puts up with me in spite of all my garbage gives me a great desire to love her and to serve her and to give to her. Right? Her goodness to me melts my hard heart, uh, my hard stubborn heart, and it motivates me to then go and do likewise. Right? Her love and generosity makes me more loving and generous. In infinitely better ways, God has loved me and served me and given to me and put up with me in spite of my sin and my rebellion and rejection and persistent stubbornness and unfaithfulness. And he doesn't just give me stuff. He gives me his very son. 
Guys, if you want to be a giving and generous person, you first need to understand your sin, the wages of your sin, death and, and hell, and the amazing thing that God has done to spare you from what you justly deserved. Jesus came, the richest one, God himself, and he became poor. He took on flesh. He, in a sense, became me, taking all of my sin, all the wrath, all the judgment that that sin deserved, dying in my place so that I, by his poverty, might then become rich, which is reconciliation with God, which is eternal life. Jesus gets my poverty. I get his riches. He gets my death and hell. I get his life and heaven. That's the gospel. And that's the only thing that motivates true giving. You should give generously because God has been far more generous to you. But again, if this whole giving thing is new to you, I want to point out that this actually isn't all that strange. This is just how things work. Think about it again. We all spend on what we love. Matthew 6, 21, right? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you want to know what you love and what you worship? Look at your checkbook. Follow the money. Where we spend reveals what we value. And when we love something, we have no problem spending on it. Right, so, for example, if you were to look at my spending, you would see that I love my family. It seems that the four ladies in my house spend about 99% of my money, um, and that's, that's fine. That's good. Um, but after that, with the rest of my disposable income, if you were to look at it, you would see, first of all, that I love books. You do not have to tell me to buy books. My wife has to tell me to stop buying books. I know the Amazon guy by name. We're good friends. He comes to the door. We talk for a little bit. He's a Jets fan. We talk football. And he brings me a book almost every single day. I have an addiction. I have a habit and I must feed it with books. So I went on a book buying fast a couple weeks ago, but then I found myself with my dad at the Strand and I have to support local bookstores, don't I? Right? It's local bookstores. They're, they're disappearing. It was my moral duty to buy a book. Um, and so I bought one. Right? I, I happily and I willingly spend money on books because I love books. You'll then see that we love food. We love eating out. We love the variety of food that Queens, we're in Woodside, and there's just so much good food everywhere. We spend money on Peruvian and Colombian and Thai and Greek, and our current obsession is Venezuelan food. There's a restaurant called Patacon Pisayo, and they take the sandwich, and instead of having a bun, the bun is fried plantains. Oh. It's amazing. I'm serious. It's, I'm obsessed. I'm, telling, I'm preaching the gospel of Patacon Pisayo to everyone. Go get it. It's amazing. Venezuelan. So I, we spend money on food. You'll see that. Then you'll see that I love sports. So I, I pay for my cable solely so that I can watch my North Carolina Tar Heels and my North Carolina Panthers. In fact, last week I spent 30 minutes on the phone with DirecTV. They charged $360 for NFL Sunday ticket. That's the only way to see the Panthers in New York. I can't pay $360, so I called and threatened to cancel, gave it to me for free. Got it. Nailed it. So if you need to see a football game that's not in market, come over to my house, come watch some football with us. But the point is, you could pull up my bank account, and you could look at where I spend my money, Amazon, books, restaurant, cable for sports, and you'll see the things that I care about, and you'll see the things that I love, right? Which means that if I'm not spending on the church and God's kingdom, well, I don't really love or value those things, 
But notice that Jesus doesn't just say that our money reveals our heart. That's what we've been talking about. He says that our heart actually follows our money. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Your heart will follow your money. Which means that if you're not giving and you desire for that to be different, then simply prayerfully start the discipline of giving and watch your heart change. If you invest thousands of dollars into the stock market, you're going to start following the stock market. I don't pay any attention to the stock market. I don't have any money. There's no money in it, so I don't care what the stock market's doing. But if you have a ton of money in there, you really care. You're going to pay attention. You're invested, and you care what happens to your money. In the same way, if you invest in your church and in God's kingdom, you're going to be more and more caring and attentive to what happens there. Your heart will naturally follow your money. So prayerfully begin the discipline of giving and watch your heart follow. Listen, I'm really trying to the best of my ability not to guilt you. God doesn't need your money. He really, he doesn't. Right? He doesn't tell you to give because he needs it. He tells you to give because you need it. We live in the wealthiest and the most materialistic society in history. As a result, all of us are blind to how much we love money. All of us are blind to our greed. As a pastor, I have the privilege of people coming to me and being willing to confess all kinds of wild things to me. Pornography and adultery. Oh, we're dealing with a collapsing marriage right now. We're dealing with some drug addiction. All of these things that people will come and talk to you about. I have never once had someone come to me confessing their struggle with greed. Never. And you all struggle with it, by the way. I struggle with it as well. But we don't see it. Right? We're, we're blind to the hold that our money has on us. We're, we're blind to how much security that we find in it. We're blind to how we depend upon it and how we worship it. You desperately need to learn the discipline of giving for the sake of your greedy heart. Giving can begin to set you free from your dependence on your money and the security that you find in it. You know why Israel wasn't giving here? It's because they didn't trust God to provide for them. You know why you're not giving? It's because you don't trust God to provide for you. Money has a hold on you. And me, too. I am the chief of sinners in this area. And God has graciously given to us the privilege of giving to begin to set our hearts free from their addiction to money. Plus, remember... It's his anyways. He says, you are robbing me. Right? It's, it's his money. It's not yours. He has graciously entrusted it to you to use it wisely and well. My brother is some sort of financial big shot, and I have no idea uh, what he does. I don't understand it. He's a CFA. He's a principal. He's, I, I don't get any of it. I don't know what investing really is or does. Um, but years ago, I asked him to invest. Like, I'd graduated, and I had like $1,000. And I was like, oh, I'm going to invest this money. And he laughed at me. Like, we don't invest that amount of money. We don't mess with your measly lunch money, right? They deal with millions and billions of dollars. I was not invited to come invest um, with them. But imagine if some billionaire went to my brother's company and invested like $50 million with them and then comes back a year later. He's like, hey, I'm going to get my money back. And my brother's like, nope, we're all right. We're going to hold on to that. No, right? They, They can't do that. It's his money, right? The SEC would be called. Lawyers would be brought in. They can't take his money and do with it what they want. It's his. And your money is God's, right? It's It's not yours. You are a steward. He has entrusted you with his money. And no, you don't have to tithe. But he does call you to give in response to what he has given to you in Jesus Christ. We are generous because God has first been so generous to us. So so how much do you have to give? 
That's the wrong question. Right? It's, it's going to look differently for everyone. Right? The answer is generously and sacrificially. Right? I can't tell you what that number is for you. I can tell you that it's more than nothing, and I can tell you that it's more than 1% or 2%. It's probably actually more than 10%. Right? So while the officially a tithe is not required, that's actually a, a decent place to start. My fear and my problem with the tithe, and this has happened to me, I grew up in a fundamentalist kind of church world where the tithe is, is preached and proclaimed as, as gospel and you got you to tithe. So even in my mind as I'm preaching to you this sermon about generous sacrificial giving, I still have that voice in the back of my mind that says, just give your 10% and you're good. Right? 10% has been easy. Right? I've got that down. That's, that's no problem. And so I'm tempted to then kind of sit on that and say, I've done my thing. I've checked the box. I've obeyed the law. This other 90%, that's mine, and I can do with it what I want. It's taken great uh, effort and prayer and difficulty to start to give above and beyond that 10%. Now, honestly, I, I think I say this humbly. I'm not trying to, to brag or to do anything to say, hey, look how great I am. I'm not. I think we struggle in this area. We've been at 10% a long time. We've tried to commit the last couple of years to climbing up a couple percent. We're doing about 12% to our church, and we have a couple missionaries that we support personally, and we give to a couple other um, Christian organizations, and I think it totals up to about 15% as I was doing taxes, right? That's not that great, actually. Uh, I've been convicted that I'm still, while preaching this to you, saying, hey, as long as I'm hitting that 10% mark, I'm good. Um, And then I can go off and and do whatever I want. I want to be a generous, sacrificial giver. Guys, I'm I'm cheap. Uh, I find security and comfort in money. I want to make sure I have this certain amount and these number of months covered kind of in my bank account in case something goes wrong. And I have all this stuff that I, I can find trust and comfort and security in that money. I'm still a bit of a miser. My heart still needs to be set free from my addiction and the comfort that I find in my money. I'm looking to grow in this area, right? So we're committed to being hitting our 10, climbing up percent by percent and getting higher. And I want by God's grace to be able to give large percentages of my money to the kingdom and to missionaries and to the church because God has been so much more generous to me. But man, we've got a long ways to go as me and my wife try to figure out how to do this um, in our house as well. So I can't tell you how to do it or, or what to do exactly, right? You need to go to the Lord in prayer. You need to talk to your spouse, talk to your elders, talk to your um, pastor about giving and what that um, should look like. Sit down and make a budget and figure out, man, you, you'd be shocked at where you spend a lot of your money. We had to stop going to Starbucks because that thing took all of our money. That place is expensive. Um, look at your money, track it, see what you love, compare to what you're giving to, to the church, to missionaries, to other things. And man, take a spiritual inventory there, right? Check your giving because your giving reveals your heart. Give generously. What will be the result? Real quick, what's the consequence? Last one. Consequence, um, fourth principle of giving. Giving brings blessing. Look at the middle of verse 10. Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the window of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Giving brings blessing. Now, God here is probably talking about rain. In verse 11, he says he will rebuke the devourer. That sounds really cool. It's bugs. He's talking about bugs. He's talking about locusts. He will protect their crops. And then he says that their crops won't fail to bear fruit. And again, this may not sound that great to us. Rain, no bugs, crops. But to an agricultural society, this was everything. This was riches and wealth. Their whole well-being depended on the rain and on the crops. So God is here promising them great blessing. Giving brings 
blessing. Now, again, this obviously applies differently to us today, but the principle is the same. Jesus himself says it. It is more blessed to give than to receive. How in the world is that? That seems crazy. How could that be true? Well, it's because God himself promises to bless and to reward giving. Are we back at the very beginning? Am I telling you the same thing that the prosperity guys on TV are telling you? No, not in the slightest. I'm not promising you material riches in this life, and God isn't either. He may bless you in that way. I don't know. But if he does, I do know that it's not just so that you can be rich and comfortable. It's so that you can then multiply your giving and continue to bless and to serve others. But God does promise blessing. Our problem is that we think material blessing is better than spiritual blessing. It's not. God blesses us with himself. God blesses us with the church. Guys, this is a blessing, right? The fact that this exists and is here and the word is being proclaimed and God's praises are being sung in this spot and you guys are all gathering together, building this together, that is such a blessing. He blesses us with each other. He blesses us with forgiveness and with reconciliation and with life abundant, eternal life abundant. He blesses us with his son, Jesus Christ. And if that's disappointing or underwhelming, then you've missed it, right? Because Jesus is everything. And he gave up everything to give us to God. That's the gospel. That's what motivates our giving. Grace motivates our giving. We give as an act of worship. We give because he has already so graciously given to us so much in Jesus Christ. And as our generous God, he has promised to work out all things together for our good. So we can know that giving will always lead to blessing. That's why you should give. Jesus is why you should give. The gospel is what motivates our giving. Let's close uh, with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you um, that you are the giving and the generous God. Um, Father, we thank you um, that anything you call us to do, you have already so um, richly done um, for us, um, Father, above and beyond. Father, you have sent us your very son, who though he was rich, became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. Father, we thank you for adopting us, for making us co-heirs with Christ, for making us your sons and daughters. Uh, Father, we are spiritually rich beyond all uh, belief. Uh, Father, help us to see that. Help us to believe that. Father, I pray that the gospel and, and your grace would motivate and, and would affect and influence our daily lives. Father, would affect our, our pocketbooks and our wallets and, and how we spend and how we use our time and what we do, uh, Lord. And I pray that you would use this time to, to open our eyes to kind of point areas in our, in our lives, Father, where um, we don't um, follow you, where we don't um, trust you. And I confess, Father, that I struggle um, in this area. I struggle to hold on to my money. I struggle to need and want more so that I can feel safe and secure. Um, but Father, my safety and security is to be found only in you, uh, Lord. And I, I pray that you would help me to see that. Father, help me to be free with my money and generous because you have been so generous um, to me, Lord. And I pray the same for, for Redeeming Grace Fellowship. Father, I thank you for what you're doing here in this place. I thank you for the leadership of, of Caleb and, and of Mike and of Steve. Uh, Father, bless them. I pray that you would give them wisdom. I pray that you would make this an abundantly generous church, Father, so that your gospel can go forth to this community that desperately needs uh, the good news. Um, Father, we thank you that you are so good and gracious and generous to us. And we pray and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.